So if you're going to stay with us, let's get the book of Daniel chapter 7, please. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and we have arrived at a turning point in the book of Daniel. As you know, we've been going verse by verse, making our way through this book. The first six chapters, you have quite a bit of narrative. There is some, well, obviously there's doctrine in any place of the Bible, but <clears throat> there are some definite teachings, and there are some prophetical stories, some prophetical material. Once you get to chapter 7, the book takes a very sharp turn towards the prophetical. And guys, might I just say this preemptively just so that you know, whenever you're dealing with prophetical, it's not that you cannot find practical stuff in it, and, and I'll try to, try to point some of that out as we go, but prophetical things are often just that. It is prophetical. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, whenever you speak about the prophetical, you are looking through the glass darkly. That is to say, you're looking maybe through a window, right, that's your glass, but the lights are not on inside the room. So it's hard to see what's going on. You can only know what the Scripture has told you. And, and many times you'll have to say, listen, I'm just not sure. It looks like it could be this or that. And therefore, it's hard to find a lot of practical lessons like you would with a narrative. But that being said, Daniel 7 all the way to chapter 12, very interesting stuff. It is one of those heavy places in the Bible we're not going to be able to plow through an entire chapter in one go. If we make it through verse 8 today, I'm going to praise God abundantly. That'll be, I, I think, a victory um, because it, it, it does get heavy. We have to take our time, compare scriptures. So here we go. Chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. So a dream and the visions of his head, that's just two ways of saying the same thing. I, I pointed it out a few weeks ago. It's what we call a hindiati. A hindiati is a figure of speech where you describe one thing in two ways. So he had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. A couple things I want to point out to you. If you're making notes, the first year of Belshazzar that will be 14 years before the events of chapter 6. All right? For, well, even that, let me scoot that back a little bit, before the events of chapter 5. Remember in chapter 5, Belshazzar is the king and they had this party and then the kingdom was overthrown. Okay? So that was chapter 5. That was Belshazzar. This is the first year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was in, in power for 14 years. So now this... We scoop back a little bit. Babylon, by the time we read about the things in chapter 7 and these visions, Babylon is still in power. And that will become significant so that it helps us understand the prophetic material that we're going to cover. All right, let me point out something else here. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel has the dreams. And then it says he wrote the dreams and told the sum of the matters. So here's my attempt at putting something practical into the lesson. When God reveals something to you, Write it down. Write it down. I remember years ago after I first got saved, my pastor, I came to him with my Bible and a list of questions. And I said, Brother Freddie, it's my pastor's name. I said, I, I've been reading my Bible. And what about this? What about this? Every day, seven days a week. And the only word I can think of is I pestered him. And I did. I, I mean, it was just one question after another. But honest questions. I wasn't being you know, difficult, not trying to be. 
And uh, eventually, after three or four weeks of this, he could see that I was taking this very seriously. And he said, Brother Mike, why don't you call the man that taught me in Bible school, Dr. Ruckman. Now, I would eventually go to that school, but I, I didn't know much about this guy, you know, who he was. He was in his uh, upper 70s at this time. He said, call this man and just ask him for some advice. I did not realize who I was calling. This man takes big meetings and he has a Bible school with 200 students and I'm, I'm a little nobody. But still, when I called, he made time to take that call. Having never known me or heard of me, and why, why would he? I'm a 20-year-old, just got saved. So I had him on the phone. Of course, I got his wife first. And uh, Mrs. Ruckman, I'm happy to speak to Dr. Ruckman. Uh, I'm, I'm a, he's in Florida. I'm in Texas. I said, I'm just a guy in Brother Freddie Reed's church. He puts him on the phone. Dr. Yeah, oh, hey, brother, hey, brother. How, how can I help you, brother? <laughs> just how he was. You know, he always had something. He was always chewing on something. Popcorn, gummy bears, something. He always had something in his mouth. Even during class. He'd bring a, a, a box of popcorn to class, and while he's teaching, <laughs> he'd be chomping on that stuff. So I said, Dr. Ruckman, my name is, is Mike, and I had just recently gotten saved, and my pastor suggested that I call you just to get some tips on how to better study the Bible, because I'm doing my best to learn. I said, I've gotten a few of your tapes, and I'm reading some commentaries, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, brother, first of all, you need to get yourself a good study Bible. Now, when he meant study Bible, I can show you what I have here today. I have a wide margin study Bible. Now, there are several editions. You can get a Cambridge version. You can get a Schofield. You can get a Hoffman. There's lots of different people that put together their own editions. I'm not talking a version, right? This is a King James version. Those are the actual words here. I'm talking this little part around here. That's a wide margin so that you can write notes, right? Those of you can see it. And then he suggested get, if you want it, get a Bible that has good study notes at the bottom. So it's like a commentary within your Bible. And at the time, that was very helpful. I, I need the space now more than I need the notes. So, uh, and then you have these references in the middle of the margin, right? So we cross-references right there in the middle. So he said, get yourself a good wide margin Bible. And uh, so you can see I took his advice, right? This is Bible number five for me. So I've, I've gone through a few of them now. And then he said, get you a, a Bible that has blank pages in the back. So I did. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. I keep my notes, as you can see, in the back. And that way I can write small enough and follow along with those notes. So I got that. He said, get you one with good maps in the back. So this one has maps in the back. And he said, everything God shows you, write it down. And that's why this Bible number five. Because <laughs> they keep filling up and filling up. And I've been shocked. 27 years almost into this, I'm still writing down new things. New things. Just, just yesterday, no, no, two days ago, I was sitting at the desk studying for this lesson. Somebody, some contractor came in to do some work, and I jumped up from the desk. I said, praise God, I have never noticed that before. Brand new note, brand new truth. I said, man, I've, I'm, I'm so glad I'm still learning. Guys, be careful about this. You say, Brother Mike, you're teaching the Bible this morning. Uh, fair enough. That's a fair description of what I'm doing. I never want to become a teacher of the Bible more than I am a student of the Bible. Write down everything, Dr. Ruckman said, and I've been doing that ever since. When I got to Bible school, his assistant pastor, who is now the pastor of that church, Brian Donovan, he's, he's been here, preached for you once, he pulled out a little notepad out of his back pocket, and he taught us in preacher's class. He said, every time God gives you an idea, to, something to say in a sermon, write it down. And, and I, so the next day, I went to work, had myself a little notepad, and I had a little pencil in my pocket, and I was a painter at the time. Man, those 
pages got stuck together with paint, you know, but I was writing down everything that came to mind. You can do that. With the advent of technology, it makes it so much easier. Just pop a quick voice note in, right? If you're not the writing kind. Now, I'm not much of a journaler myself, but if you do that, there's nothing wrong with that. Jot it down. Take some time to be still and quiet and think about the things that God has shown you throughout the day. Right? As you read through your Bible, have a pen and paper nearby so that as you notice something, jot it down. It says in the book of Jeremiah, it talks about marking his word. Who has marked my word? So, so you, you take notice of things, you circle it, you underline it, you highlight it. That's a good practice to get into. Brother Welder, who was just here, he and I had a lot of time to chat. And I, I know you folks got a lot from him being here. I, I, I got everything that you got, you know, the same sermons. But, man, the, the private conversations just helped me tremendously. One thing he mentioned was he keeps a list of illustrations, sermon illustrations. So he has a, a it's a one in, in notes, I think, one of the apps. He just has a, a running list. Now, I've done that before in various ways, but I, I've started another running list. I want to write down as much as I can so that I don't forget it. So this is, I think, a good practical little nugget to take away this morning. Now, Daniel 7 and verse 2, he says here, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. All right, a couple things to notice here. He says, he, he spake and said, who did he say this to? Now, I'll be honest, I don't have an answer for you there. It, it says he spake it, all right? This is 14 years before the fall of Babylon. Did he say this so that Belshazzar could have heard it? Did he pronounce, because he's in a high position within the Babylonian government. Did Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar hear this? If he did, that really makes a lot, well, it adds to the story of chapter 5. Belshazzar would have ignored the warning and still had that party. So that's an interesting point. Maybe he didn't. Maybe just Daniel explained these things to the Jews because that was his community. I'm not sure who all he said it to. But look at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 28. After Daniel's explained it all, he says, Hitherto is the end of the matter. So he explains things all the way to the kingdom, to, to where Jesus sets up his kingdom, and then it stretches on into eternity. So he's explained it all. Verse 28, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations, that's a big word we don't use much anymore. Have you ever heard of cognitive function? That's your brain function. Cogitations is your thoughts. So now you can go out and tell people, I'm, I'm having a cogitation. <laughs> you sound really smart. He says, my cogitations much troubled me and my countenance changed in me. So, so what he was thinking about, you could see it on his face. He was really troubled by it. Verse 28 at the end, but I kept the matter in my heart. So it's not to say he never said this stuff out loud. He obviously did, verse 2. But after he said it, he continued to think about it. Realize what he's thinking about. It's the rise and fall of all the major kingdoms of the world to the end of time. That's enough to trouble you. <laughs> I mean, if you just think about South African politics for about 20 seconds, you'll already be troubled. What is going to come of our nation? Daniel has just been showed <clears throat> what's going to come of all the nations. So it's, it's quite a thought. Now back in verse 2, he spake and, and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven 
strove upon the great sea. What are these four winds? Well, it's north, south, east, and west. I think that's fairly obvious, you know, coming from all four directions. But when he says they strove, here's the best I can do with that is that these four winds coming from the four directions are fighting against each other. So they're all blowing at the same time in all directions. What what would we call that? I think that would be a a description of a cyclone, or as the the Bible word is a whirlwind. So he looks out at the great sea in this vision. He sees in the Mediterranean Sea, that was for the people of that time, that was the great sea, and he sees these winds blowing, stirring, And they're all trying, it's chaotic. It's moving in every direction. All right, so that that picture in mind, verse 3, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. All right, so the great sea is the Mediterranean. It touches three very important continents. In the then known world, in what we call the ancient world, they did not know there were seven continents. It wasn't until the 1400s when the Portuguese and the Spaniards began sailing around the world that people found out the world was a much bigger place than just these three continents. But the old thought was there's Europe, there's Asia, and there's Africa. That's it. And people knew about North Africa. There is some evidence that Solomon knew about Tanzania. There's some evidence of that in the Bible. That's a study for another day that he sent ships down every three years to get apes and peacocks and various things from this this central region of Africa. But they knew about Africa because the Mediterranean touches northern Africa, touches Asia, touches Europe when you get over to Portugal, Spain, Rome, and up in, in, in that side. So what Daniel is seeing are four great beasts, which are going to equal four great kingdoms, rising up from something touching that that water. Right? And, and those kingdoms that rise up, they rule over the land that's touching that water. So that's what he's focusing on. I just want to give you a quick cross-reference. Hold your place here. Get Revelation 13 in verse 1. I want you to have this in the back of your mind as we go through Daniel 7. And we will eventually study this in greater detail in the weeks to come. But Revelation 13 and verse 1. Right, it says here, and I saw, I, I'm sorry, and I stood upon the sand of the sea. As best I can tell, that's the Mediterranean Sea. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. We'll talk about that later. And upon his horns, ten crowns, and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. Watch this now, verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Keep that animal in mind. And his feet were as the feet of a bear. Don't forget that one. And his mouth as the mouth of a lion, you'll want to know that one. And the dragon, keep that in mind, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, Revelation 13 is something that is yet to happen. It is going to happen probably in the very near future. It is the rise of a one world government is what you're reading there, headed by one particular man that we call the Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 7, we know him as the little horn. And you'll see why. I just want you to see the connection. There's something rising up out of the sea, and it is 
labeled by these various animals. It is this conglomerate beast, if you will. All right, so come back to Daniel 7 and verse number 3. The four great beasts came up from the sea. So they come up from the area touching the sea. Uh, Let your eyes come down just for a moment to verse 17. Daniel is having the dream explained to him. Daniel 7 and verse 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But then in verse 3 it says they came up from the sea. So which one's true? Both. The sea and the land touch at a certain point. So where that great sea that Mediterranean touches, then it's from those areas that these kingdoms rise up. All right, so Daniel 7, now let's get verse 4. It says here, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now, forgive me, I maybe moved a little quick. At the end of verse 3, they're diverse one from another. As we go through the descriptions, you're going to see each kingdom had its strengths and weaknesses, and you'll see the differences. Somebody's having an idea. Verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld, or it says, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. All right, this first one, this is going to equal Babylon. This was the kingdom that was in power when Daniel received this vision. And remember that it is still standing. And that's important because some people, when they approach this chapter, they say Daniel is seeing the future. So what is happening in his present, you can't count into the vision. But Daniel's present, right, he is still, Babylon is still in power. There's 14 years until they fall. So what you're reading here is still prophetic. Yes, Babylon's in power, but you can see the fall of that kingdom mentioned in here, that it is very majestic and very strong and that it has uh, the lion and the eagle put together but you're going to see the demotion of this kingdom. And that had not happened. This was still 14 years out in in front of him. One of the things as you walked up to Babylon and walked in the gates, they had two large uh, stone creatures that had been made by hand, but then it was guarding the gate. We call it a griffin. How many of you know what a griffin is? It's a lion that had wings. It was a lion with wings. So that very much fits the description that we have. So a lion, obviously, we call that the king of the jungle, very strong, a very majestic animal, very intimidating, very authoritative. Nature teaches us that. You don't need a a Bible to even teach you that. Eagles, also very majestic, and they soar very high, and they soar up there in the sky for a very long time. Babylon ruled for A fairly long time as far as empires go in this time in history. They were very majestic, very powerful. In other places, Nebuchadnezzar was called that head of gold, that king of kings in one place. So he had superiority, strength, dignity, majesty. That was Nebuchadnezzar. But that Babylonian empire, as time went on, it says the wings were plucked. So it wasn't flying so high. It wasn't as majestic as time went on They got grounded, right? They got brought back down to reality and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. So no longer was he strong and bold and fierce and and courageous. Now, just like any other man, if you were to face an animal, that man would be scared. And we're going to read about a bear coming on him. A lion might be willing to take on a bear, but not a man, not a sane man, (laughs) not not an unarmed man. (laughs) 
you wouldn't do that. And, and I think it's, it's ironic how Nebuchadnezzar, right? The Bible talks about him losing his mind for a little while. And he was sent out to pasture for seven years. And then he got his mind back and started to act again like a man. Right? So he, God had to bring him down a notch just to remind him, you're not everything you think you are. And, and here we see the end of the kingdom. Now Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. Belshazzar is on the throne. But he's reminded, you're, you're not what you used to be. Brought him down. So that's the kingdom of Babylon. Now verse number five. And behold, another beast. A second like to a bear. Now this bear is going to be representative of Media Persia. Media Persia. That was the kingdom that followed Babylon. We've talked about this already a little bit in chapters 5 and 6. A bear is strong. I mean, I don't think I need to explain to you that a bear is strong, but a bear is not as majestic as a lion. Now maybe you think that's an opinion, and that's fine, but I think that's a fairly universal opinion. I think that's a very very common opinion. A bear is, I think anything in nature is interesting to look at, but there's just something about that lion moving about and hearing that lion roar. A bear is going to get my attention. (laughs) I'm going to run all the same. I'm going to pray like I've never prayed before, but a bear is just not quite as majestic. A bear, when it walks through, it trounces and pounces everything in its path, right? A lion can leap here and there, not a bear. Remember in Revelation 7, I'm sorry, Revelation 13, remember that beast had the mouth like a lion and the feet like a bear? So that end times kingdom is going to have the best of all these empires put into one. But what you have here, this is Media Persia, like a bear, and it says, and it raised up itself on one side. Media Persia, right? you have two kingdoms, two areas put together, but it, it, the bear is laying down in this vision. And he rolls over onto one side. So one of those kingdoms rises up above the other. Media Persia started off equal partners in this venture, but as time went on, the Persian side raised up higher, and it matches the vision. Now bear in mind, Daniel's seen this in about 540-something, maybe 550. This is still several years down. We're 50, 60 years he's seen into the future, but that is how it played out. A second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. So, this, for you get those ribs going, nine, the, the ribs are still in the teeth. The bear is busy with the ribs. These are not ribs that he's eaten and put aside and done. He's still gnawing on it. So it is a a somewhat recent victory that he he just conquered and he has the three ribs in there. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. I'll give you a couple options as to what these ribs might represent. It's obviously three entities that the bear has conquered, right? I think that's a fair conclusion to come to. But, But... Who did he conquer? What are the ribs? Daniel 8 verse 4. Obviously, we'll talk more about Daniel 8 in weeks to come, but in this particular vision, we read about a ram with two horns. The ram is a picture of an empire with two kings, Media, Persia. Okay? So verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, not eastward. 
So he's, he's going three different directions. And as he's going, stupid it says, so that no beasts might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So here this bear from chapter 7, now likened unto a ram, he's going north, south, and west, not going east. It could be that the three ribs represent the three directions that he's conquering. Nobody could stand before him. He's, everywhere he goes, he destroys and devours, and he, nothing can stop him, right? So he's just enjoying that brai everywhere he goes. So back to Daniel 7 and verse 5. The, the other option is this, and this is historically accurate, that... Media Persia did go down and conquer. They conquered Babylon, obviously. Then they moved into North Africa and took over Libya and Egypt. So some people will say that those are the three ribs, Babylon, Libya, and Egypt, which makes sense. They did conquer. They did set up. My problem with that is, is those are not the only three places they conquered. And I very much like having another verse that I can link it to. I see in Daniel 8 verse 4, three various directions mentioned. So I, I would prefer to go with that understanding of it. All right, now at the end of verse 5, the ribs begin to say something. They said thus unto it, arise, devour much flesh. So the ribs are in the mouth of the bear going, eat a little more. <laughs> go ahead, eat a little more. <laughs> That's just kind of a strange setting, but... I, I think if we consider politics just a little bit, you know how world politics go. Once you get conquered, right, it's very sad, it's very painful, the bear is crunching down, but now that you're under the control of these people, well, I want to see the people ruling over me, I, I want to see this kingdom expand and flourish. Because if you're ruling over me, I don't want to see you conquered, that's just going to mean more war, more trouble. So now that you've conquered, go ahead and conquer some more. Now that you're ruling over my side, I, I assume that's why the ribs have taken that position. Okay, you've taken over. You've done, done away with the Babylonians. If you're in charge, then more power to you. This actually matches what God told the Jews to do. He said, when you guys go into captivity, you go to Babylon, pray for the peace of Babylon. He said, you're going to be there for 70 years, so you might as well make the most of it. So what would you do? You'd say, Nebuchadnezzar, more strength to you. You would, you would not be on his side, but you would want to see peace and prosperity in that kingdom while, while he's in power. So I think that's what you're dealing with there. All right, Daniel 7 and verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. That is the strangest looking leopard you've ever seen or thought about in your life. A four-headed, four-winged leopard moving through. Right, so now this, this bear is followed by this leopard. A leopard obviously moves fast. It is built for speed. It is built for heavy tackling. That's one of its tactics. It takes down larger animals because it hits hard and fast and tackles that animal. I actually looked it up just for the interest of it. Could a leopard beat a bear? And every time they'd say, no way. A bear, just one whack, one whack of that bear's hand. But then I, I came across some other websites that said, that if that leopard knew just how to strike at the right time 
and caught that bear at the right angle, he could tackle the bear to the ground, thus not, not taking away all of his strength, but taking away quite a bit of its strength. And if he bit him just right, he could take that bear down. So it's possible. Alexander the Great was just one of those very gifted military minds. And he knew how to strike hard, and he knew how to strike fast. He took over at the age of 20, the throne of Macedonia, which was then like the capital of, of the Grecian Empire. He took over at age 20. By the time he was 33, in 13 years, he not only had conquered all of what we now think of as Greece and, and that area, Asia Minor, his kingdom expanded all the way down to northern Africa and all the way to India. In 13 years, as a younger man, that's moving fast. That is moving fast. Now let me also give you this thought. A leopard is a conglomerate animal. Here's what I mean by that. It has three different colors on it. It's yellow, it's white, and it's black. It has all three colors mixed into it. So, so it's yellow color that kind of is, I, I would say, predominant there. I think it matches the three people groups over which Alexander ruled. He, he ruled over Semitic people, the Arabs and the Jews. Alexander had power over them. That's the yellow part. Forgive me, I'm not trying to be rude when I say the yellow people, right? I'm not, that's, not a, that's not a derogatory thing. I'm just, a, just uh, let's say, a description. And then he also ruled over the Japhetic people. Now, you understand Shemetic, we get that from Shem, Noah's son. And then the Japheth, that's another one of Noah's sons. The Japhetic people, that's your Caucasians. He ruled over what we would call Europe, Greece, that side. And then he also ruled over northern Africa, the Hamitic part. So he, and when you look at a leopard, you have the yellow fur on top, black spots all over, and a white belly. So it's all three people groups put into one. Also part of the Antichrist kingdom in Revelation chapter 13. All right, so all of that working together. Now you say, what about these four wings and these four heads? All right. Notice the order in which they're mentioned. Upon the back of it, four wings of a fowl. So now, this animal is moving. It has four wings. The wings of a fowl would allow it, allow it to fly quickly, to move even faster than a leopard would normally move. Alexander had four generals, and they were very good at what they did. So Alexander's over them, but these four generals are pushing for these military conquests. They allowed the kingdom to spread far and fast. Once Alexander died, and he died a very untimely, unexpected death at the age of 33, those four generals took over the kingdom, and the kingdom of Greece was split four different ways. Now that happened right about 336 BC. That's almost 200 years after what we're reading in Daniel 7. Look at Daniel 11. Daniel 11, verse number 3. This is 300 years before this happens. Or 200, I'm sorry, 200 years before it happens. Daniel says here, and a mighty king shall stand up. Now that mighty king turns out to be Alexander the Great. That shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, 
nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. So his kingdom, the kingdom won't be as impressive under these next guys as it was under Alexander. It says, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. So it's divided into the four winds, four different directions, four different heads come from this leopard. The kingdom after Alexander died was divided amongst four generals, not to his posterity, not to his children. Alexander had an infant son, obviously not capable of ruling over the kingdom, so the kingdom did not pass to his son, but rather to the generals. And then we get Macedonia, Asia Minor, Minor, some people call it Thrace, Syria, and Egypt, and the kingdom of Greece was split those four different directions. Daniel pegged it 200 years before it happened. He listed out exactly how it would come to, come to pass. I come back to Daniel 7. So Daniel has seen Babylon, majestic, dignified, and then brought down in humiliation. He's seen this bear, the very powerful, arising, devouring much flesh, and it did. But eventually the leopard takes over. The kingdom is divided four ways. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions... And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. Now, what kind of beast is it? What is it? I, we don't know. The Bible never gives it a name. We're not sure. I read you in Revelation, mouth of a lion, right? feet as a bear, look like, look like a leopard, but then there's a dragon that shows up. Are we re- is this a dragon? Maybe. I don't know. I'm just going to use this terminology, a terrible beast, a terrible beast, right? Hey, you know what? Let's call it the Kraken. <laughs> Release the Kraken. I, I, I don't know. Call it whatever you want. But it's so dreadful that this, as we go through the rest of the chapter, Daniel's going to give us maybe two verses of explanation on the other beast. But Daniel has questions about this last beast. He will ask the angel, whoever it was uh, revealing it, tell me more about this beast. So let, let's take a look at it. Dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly. Historically, we know this was Rome, all right? Historically. But this beast extends all the way to our present day right now. This part of the prophecy is affecting us at this moment. It says, strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. Do you remember back in chapter 2, we read about Daniel seeing that image Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, and in Nebuchadnezzar's image, there were legs of iron, remember that? And then feet, part of iron, part of clay, remember that? Legs of iron. The iron is, is used to signify Rome. This great, terrible, dreadful beast, it has great iron teeth. Rome, historically, was known for being extremely brutal. And I've touched on this in in past lessons, so I won't say a lot more about it now, but they were excessively cruel. And they they reveled in it. To them, it was just sport. This is where the whole gladiator kind of thing came from. To them, it was just fun and games to see people ripped limb from limb, and they tried to rule and educate through intimidation. Exceedingly, the Bible says, strong exceedingly, terrible, great iron teeth, it devoured in the middle of verse 7, it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. 
So Rome, as it would go about conquering various places, and they did expand the kingdom even larger than what Alexander had done, sometimes they would go through a place conquering it just to conquer it, not to build it back up, not to put any infrastructure there, just, to, just for the sake of murdering people. And, and as they would leave, they would just leave it burnt to the ground, throw salt on it so that nothing else could ever happen in that particular place. Just a brutal people. So it says at the end of verse 7, And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So after describing the brutality of it, now we get into the ten horns. Those ten horns are going to rise up in the end times. So what's happened now? Rome, it rises to power in the 200s, right? And slowly it takes over. And by the time Jesus shows up, Rome is in power. Rome stays in power until 476 AD. Then the fall of the Roman Empire takes place. This is when the Roman Catholic Church begins to rise up. They were already an entity, but they didn't have any power, not politically. But after that point, the Pope says it is my job, our job, as the church to rule over the nations. So what he then does is he goes about and took a little time, but he says, I will now choose the kings. So he begins putting kings in various places, and as he goes to nation to nation, he says, "Uh, welcome to Christianity. You have two options today. You can either get baptized or you can be drowned. You pick your, your way of getting wet, but one way or the other, you're going to, be, you're going to get wet today. And this is how he went about devouring places, strong exceedingly, and he would call it a, a new version of the Roman Empire. Right? This was where Holy Mother Church came from. We are taking care of our children, taking care of these nations. So this Roman Empire, the political version of it died out, but the papal version of it continued on. And it is still at work today. They still have political pull today. The Pope is more of a geopolitician than he is a religious leader. I understand that he has a religious function, but he uses that function very much to involve himself in politics. And it has been that way for a long, long time. Uh, Come to Revelation chapter 17. Now, this is something we're not going to get deep into. I'm just going to introduce it now, and we'll talk more about it probably next week, maybe the next couple of weeks. Maybe you've heard this term before, a revived Roman Empire. Have you heard of that? The reason we call it revived Roman Empire, political Rome died out. Rome has been ruling kind of under the undercover, if you will, mystery, Babylon the Great, that whole, they're working in the shadows. But eventually, you get past the long legs of iron, you get to the feet and the toes, part of iron, part of clay. You get to the end times, and that Roman Empire will revive. And the power and the cruelty all come together again, and that will be in the days of the Antichrist. So it is that fourth kingdom. It is Rome, but a different version of Rome, headed up by first the ten horns, And eventually, those ten horns are going to be ruled over by the Antichrist. So, Revelation 17 and verse number 11. Ah, Forgive me, let's get verse 9. Let's go all the way back to that. Revelation 17 and 9. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. 
And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Now that, that man you just read about, that's the Antichrist. He says in verse 11, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. He is the eighth and is of the seven. So he's one of the seven, but he's the eighth. But he's the seventh. That's, we'll get to that. Verse 12, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. Well, here's the Bible interprets itself for us. The ten horns are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Right? I'm giving you that. Just We're coloring in the picture slowly. Come back to Daniel 7. Let's finish up <clears throat> in verse number 8 here. Having this in mind now about the ten horns, So at the end of verse 7, it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. Why? It had a different form of government, different customs, different gods, different level of brutality, a a different longevity. It went on and on and even to this day working beneath the surface a little bit. Verse 8, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn. You can circle that. That's the Antichrist. So first what... When we press into these last days, be on the lookout for some union, some confederacy of ten politicians coming together to somehow bring change and, and effect over the world. And with the rise of COVID recently, we saw how the nations of the world are happy to come together to make laws that affect everybody, not just their own people. So I think we can see how that could happen very quickly if it needed to. It says, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So this Antichrist starts off as a politician, not as a religious leader. That comes later. There are ten horns. They are ten ten politicians. They are not kings as such, but they will receive such authority. But only after this little horn rises up. So the ten ten nations come together as one unit, and then a the Antichrist rises up this little horn and he takes down from the roots, from, from within, he takes down three of those kings. <clears throat> he then has authority over them. Once he has that authority, he gets catapulted to the head of all of it and he takes over the entire kingdom. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man. So there is a human element to him. Why? Well, he's human. He sees things like a human. But it says, and a mouth speaking great things. So he has the look of a man, but when he starts to talk, the things he's saying, it's not like a man. A man, I'm so sorry, a man would not say these kind of things. Let me show you what I mean by this. Get two places and we'll finish up. Get Revelation 13 again. And then I want you to get 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So get both of those places, and we'll just look quickly at what he might say. How many of you have ever heard, if you've ever talked with a Muslim, maybe you've heard them say this. This has come up in every one of the debates I've done with with any Muslim. Where did Jesus ever say, I am God, worship me? You guys familiar with that? Um, that? That is something that a Muslim will often bring up. Where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? Well... 
Let's see if maybe this little horn doesn't have some great thing to say that might match that. Revelation 13, we've already read down to verse 2. Get verse 5. So the Antichrist is going to be assassinated. The devil will raise him from the dead. That's verses 3 and 4. Verse 5, and there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. That's three and a half years. That's half of the seven of the tribulation. Verse 6, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. If you're saved today, that's talking about you. He will be blaspheming those that have died for their faith during that tribulation time and those that were raptured out beforehand, saying they were the problem and he'll speak evil of us. You can see in verse 7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. There's your one world leader. He's the leader over the whole world. Now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So he has this mouth speaking great things. What is he saying? No doubt, he's saying all kinds of great and, and tremendous things. Outstanding statements that a man normally wouldn't make. In Daniel 8, it says he can understand dark sentences. That is, these mysteries, you know, the Loch Ness Monster and the Bermuda Triangle, he, he'll, he'll explain all that, you know, that kind of stuff. That, how, do you, how do we know how this works? He'll have answers. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse, let's get verse 3 and 4, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the rapture, shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So as we press towards the last days, even within the church, there will be people falling towards the Antichrist, falling away from the truth, but actually thinking that this man has the answers. And verse 4 happens, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This man one day sits in that temple. And he says, I am God. Revelation 13, it says the whole world worships the beast. You know what he's going to say? I am God. Worship me. And if I understand correctly, the world, by and large, with few exceptions, right? The few exceptions are are those end times believers that miss the rapture but convert afterwards. They hang on to their faith and it costs them their life. But what he's that great thing he says to the world is, you see, they killed me, I rose again. He walks into the temple and says, I'm God, worship me. That is what Daniel has seen. So we'll pick that up next next week. We'll see what comes after that. All right, let's all stand if you would, please. Father, thank you for giving us a look uh, through the glass darkly this morning. Lord, we understand that uh, there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of chaos to come. But you've given us a book to anchor us. You've given us the Spirit of God to calmly guide us through and navigate these difficult times. Lord, I pray that you'd help us today to be busy about your business. And Lord, we understand there's chaos in the governments of the world. And Lord, the end times get dark. Help us to shine brightly as lights in this world. I pray you bless the service to come and our fellowship now in Jesus' name. 